Welcome to the Weightless Podcast, broadcasting from the land of horses and bourbon, Louisville, Kentucky. I am Tom, and I'm here with my longtime friend and colleague, Brad, and we are on the data science team at Capture Higher Ed. Hey there, Brad. What's going on, man? Not too much. Just chilling at our awesome Airbnb and uh, ready, to, ready to talk data. How's it going, man? It's, it's going great. It's a brand new year, 2017. Can you believe it, 2017? I, I can't. Uh, the, next year, there will be kids applying to college who were born in like 2000. That, oh, are you kidding? Or is that, that right? That, I mean, pre- presumably. I mean, they're yeah. going to be 18. I mean, maybe they're already applying this year. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, that's 2017 is definitely making me feel like one thing exactly, and that's that 17 years ago, it was 2000. Hmm. And, th- and we solved the Y2K problem. We, we seem to really have hammered that out nicely. Yeah, we did. You hey, know, I'm kind of dis- but I'm kind of disappointed. I figured we'd have jetpacks by now. Uh, you know, flying cards, jetpacks. I'm, I'm we were promised just a little bit We were promised jetpacks. And I have two. So where have you been? <laughs> so do you believe in New Year's resolutions? I, I do because New Year's resolutions are just uh, things that you can break sooner. Uh, so yes. What's the percentage? I think it was... It was like 45% of people within 30 days have, have broken. That's, you know, 100% of stats are made up on the spot. So uh, there you go. It's true. But if, if you really want to watch uh, uh, the data on New Year's resolutions, uh, join um, a gym on like November 10th and go every single day until like February 1st. And that is like a legitimate data point on New Year's resolutions. Like so all of a sudden you can't get on a treadmill to save your life. So here's here's my here's my resolution. It's, it's, it's yeah, kind of perpetual. All the stupid stuff that I did last year, I'm gonna stop doing that next year. Uh, so what what exactly? Well, it, it what, just it just keeps rolling. Like I'm it's sorry, not actually what, a what thing. What exactly does that leave? I don't know. In terms of other stuff that you did that you didn't do. I don't know. Um, yeah, my perpetual New Year's resolution is this is going to be the year where finally I stop biting my nails, um, and I find myself a year later just enjoying them the same as ever. <laughs> All right. Well, like we always do here on the Weightless Podcast, we always bring a little bit of brew to the table, and uh, this time is no different. So we're going to kick off. Brad, why don't you stop, start us off there? What are you drinking this evening? So we, uh, we got a couple of tweets uh, recently, and uh, someone mentioned that we should uh, work our way through the line of Dogfish Head beers, and obviously Dogfish Head is a, a, a well-known uh, sort of national microbrewery. So I'm, I'm actually drinking the Dogfish Head Namaste, which is um, kind of a, a, a wit beer style. Um, it reminds me an awful lot of a uh, retired New Belgium uh, beer called Sunshine Wheat. So it's got that kind of spicy... Uh, spicy wheat beer going on um, and uh, as everything that comes out of dogfish head it is absolutely delicious so I'm extremely happy that we have this absolutely absolutely and I was excited to get recommendations from you guys uh, tweet it at us and we can certainly include that I am drinking um, a, a beer that's closer to geographically closer to my uh, hometown which is from the Terrapin Brewing Company out of Athens Georgia and it's their recreation ale which is a session uh, what is a session pale ale all right, so we'll break this uh, guy open here and, uh, and enjoy it. Cool. All right, cheers. Cheers, man. Do you know what namaste means? I don't. It, uh, it means I bow to you. Really? It sure does. Or I bow to the divine in you. So there you go. You learn something new every day. I absolutely do. Um, which, which is funny because I've actually been meaning it as just a horrible insult for years. So <laughs> uh, I've been using it all wrong. 
so speaking of learning something, we always try to bring uh, a number to the table, something that uh, is uh, pertinent to your enrollment management and data, which is something that we talk about every uh, on every podcast, the meeting space between technology, data, and this wonderful field of enrollment management. And uh, we do that by going through our numbers. Uh, and uh, I'm going to go first. And uh, so there's been a lot of conversation nationally about, obviously, PPY and early FAFSA submissions and some maybe some early indications of increases in FAFSA submissions. And as we kind of go through the, the, the remaining part here of this applicant season, I wanted to draw attention to an, a particularly interesting study that, that just came out here at the beginning of December from NCAN, found that the national FAFSA completion rate for high school graduates was only 44%. That is, of the 3.4 million U.S. high school graduates in 2013-14, only 1.5 million of them completed the FAFSA. And that matters because 90% of high school seniors who complete the FAFSA proceed directly on to college versus only 55% of those who don't complete the FAFSA. So there's this great, this is sort of the narrative that, you know, it's just so much, it's like this flood of people applying. And, uh, and NCAN, very rightly, is, is pointing to the fact that, listen, we still have a problem. We still have a lot of uh, students who aren't filling this out. Now, potentially, these are students who actually could, could qualify for aid. It is an extremely cumbersome process. Even when you're applying at graduate school and you That's have right. to fill out your own FAFSA and you're deeper in life and you have more experience, it's still a lot of work. So it comes as a very little surprise to me that, um, that the FAFSA has low completion rates. Yeah, I mean, and, and it really kind of, uh, there's been a lot of conversations about making it easier or even just making it something uh, like a checkbox on somebody's taxes the year that they're applying to college. Yep. Um, and I think that's smart. Um, yeah, that, that would be sort of, that would land in the classic category of a nudge, you know, using a sort of choice architecture and, you know, as uh, Dick Thaler and uh, Cass Sunstein would talk about, you know, use choice architecture, make it easier for people to fill out their FAFSA by checking a box and the information comes over from their tax return. I mean, that would be a, a clear technology win. Absolutely. So Brad, uh, so, yeah, so my, Brad mine, what do you got? Yeah. Uh, mine's pretty basic. Uh, I was just uh, interested in educational attainment. Um, we recently went through a presidential election and a lot of folks were talking about um, different voting patterns for uh, people with different education levels. And so I just actually had to look up for a few minutes what the educational attainment level and whether there have been any interesting trends in that. Um, and sure enough, uh, the educational attainment level in the United States has gone up um, across multiple levels over the last 20 years. So between 1995 and uh, 2015, um, folks with a high school diploma or uh, an equivalent went up from 87 to 91 percent. Um, folks with an associate's degree or higher went up from 33 to 46 percent. And folks with a, a bachelor's degree or higher went up from 25 to 36 percent. So um, I think it would be certainly worthwhile to dig into these numbers a little bit more and try and understand um, whether uh, there's evidence that the labor market is driving people to get more education or if educational opportunities are more available um, or whatever the case might be. But across uh, numerous educational levels, there's obviously been increases in people um, going to and completing uh, various degrees. Yeah, super, super important, well particularly done. for the, our economy and, and, and how we grow as a, as, a, as a national economy, for sure. So this time on the podcast, we actually have our second interview. Our first interview was with, was with Zane Kandwala, who was the executive director um, of the Institute for Advanced Analytics at Bellarmine. And this time, we are really fortunate to have an interview with one of the co-founders of Raise.me, uh, George Kirkland. 
And Raise.me is a really fascinating story of a rethinking a, a decades-old practice in financial aid. So Raise.me has over 320,000 students have signed up to use the Raise platform, which connects them to uh, over 200 colleges and universities who offer micro-scholarships for uh, incremental accomplishments. So if you think about it, what they've done is they've taken uh, the financial aid process, which you know for, for decades has been this uh, large lump sum award that comes really at the end of, uh, of a high school process, and said, you know, what if, what if we broke it up and, and, and really um, sort of gamified it, if you will, um, and basically have made it to where uh, for every single smaller accomplishment, there's a dollar uh, amount attached to that. Um, so instead of this old method, they're really rethinking it, and um, and it's a prime example of a company rethinking a decades-old practice and having a real impact. And I think it's a really, really interesting conversation. Uh, yeah, ab absolutely. It's uh, cool technology and uh, in interesting uh, data question, and something that uh, we're always, always interested in, in learning more about. Kind of the new and different ways in which uh, folks out there are uh, changing the game. So um, I think you'll you'll be really interested in in what George has to say, and um, this is this is a cool discussion. So Tom, let's uh, let's get it started. All right, well, thank you, George, so much for joining us uh, this uh, this morning, and uh, we're super excited to get a chance to talk to you. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So, start us off with what was the, the Ray's story? I mean, where did the idea come from for micro scholarships? Uh, did, did it come from a you know, maybe another another field? Did, and exactly how did it come about that, that Ray's started this this sort of journey that you've been on? Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's a great story, and... Um... You know, it, it came from an experience. So my, my co-founder, uh, Preston Silverman, he's our, our CEO, and he was uh, out in India teaching, actually, to, uh, I guess they were, you know, 11th graders, and he was teaching economics uh, to these students. And uh, they kept coming to him, and then they kept saying, you know, uh, we want to go to college, but we don't think we can afford it. And that's what started the whole idea of, you know, scholarships earlier in high school and which um, really made him realize that there was a problem, you know, and, and that we give out $50 billion a year in aid, but that aid all comes at the very end of high school, which is too late to impact students' college ambitions or their individual college application decisions. Um, and so that's kind of how it all started. And, and Preston came back to the U.S. and he was like, yeah, you know, I, I think there's this, this issue um, and at that point, I was working at, at Morgan Stanley um, in New York City. Press and I had gone to college together. And so he got in touch with me and kind of started throwing these ideas around, really asking about the structuring of, of micro scholarships and, um, and what that would look like. Um, you know, I was sponsoring a couple students in the Bronx at that point. And so I'd been working with them and was really passionate about the space. And so when he came to me, uh, we just kind of started talking about it and uh, spending our weekends together working on it. And um, we started looking at, well, what if um, we could allow colleges to give out scholarships earlier? And that way it could have an impact on students um, and, uh, and really help them on their path to college. But at the same time, it could be a really valuable recruitment tool um, for colleges. So in looking at that, we found a win-win and we found product market fit where, um, you know, colleges would actually pay us for the right to award these scholarships to students. Um, and in turn, it would have a really positive impact on students' development and their progress towards college. 
Um, so that's kind of how the initial idea came and then how it uh, transformed into to where it is now. That's uh, really interesting. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about, you know, it's uh, both got a technology component, you know, as a, uh, you know, sort of a, a tech startup, if, if you will, or if you're okay with those terms. Um, uh, but it also, uh, you know, lives in this sort of education space. I was wondering if you could just talk about some of the challenges um, that, that you've had from the get-go um, and maybe, maybe something you did expect and something you didn't expect. Yeah, um, I think one of the, the first challenges is, is, you know, having support and, and funding for something like this um, and, and kind of getting your start. And um, especially if, you know, you're not someone who has a lot of money to put into something like this. Um, and so we were, you know, we initially got started and, and we were not making a dime. We weren't even paying each other uh, a salary. Um, and we were fortunate to get to win this thing called the College Knowledge Challenge, um, which came from, um, I guess, the supporters were Facebook and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Um, and there were about 20 organizations that won that. Um, and then we won $75,000 at the Penn Graduate School of Education um, uh, EdTech Business Plan Competition. Um, and so we were able to get that um, as startup capital. Um, which was really nice. So that was initially one of the concerns. Um, and, and so I think the next thing we were probably thinking about was how do you get your first clients, you know, the first, first movers. Um, and uh, I'd say we thought that was going to be a challenge, but what we've seen is, you know, folks in, in higher ed um, are looking for a change. They're ready for change. Uh, they're looking for um, new and innovative ways that are going to, um, you know, help both students and colleges uh, hit their goals. And so we initially set a goal of having five colleges um, as partners. We said we're going to do five colleges and uh, 10,000 students and uh, went from there and said, okay, well, now we're going to do 10. And we got 10 and he said, now we're going to do 20. Now we're up to 220 college partners. So it kind of grew from there. Um, I'd say kind of going to, to the other side of it, uh, one of the challenges that that we've seen is dealing with high school guidance counselors. And I think that's something that's really important to, to highlight um, is that, you know, we were really hoping that to get to students, we could go through the high school guidance counselors. Um, and, and so um, we knew that there was a challenge for high school guidance counselors um, and that they were overwhelmed. They had so much going on. Um, and our hope was that we could actually create a tool for them. Um, so we created a, a free tool where a high school guidance counselor can go on and they can track their students' progress. So they can uh, see their students' portfolio on raise. They can see how many scholarships they've earned. Uh, they can see which colleges they're following. They can message them and all of that. Um, and we thought, wow, this is free. This, you know, everyone's going to want to use this. Uh, you know, it's like a lightweight Naviance-like tool. Um, it's going to be killer and started going out and sharing this with, with folks. And I think, um, we were really surprised when they said, ah, we got too much going on. We don't need your free tool, you know, no, no thanks. And it really does underscore, you know, the issue out there, especially with the folks that we're trying to reach. We're trying to reach these low income, uh, you know, students that don't have support. And when you deal with a high school guidance counselor at those high schools, you know, they're drinking from a fire hose. You know, they're just taking care of seniors, trying to get their seniors out the door. Uh, the last thing they're worried about is, is, you know, 
logging onto this tool and getting all their freshmen, you know, signed up for, for raise.me. And so initially we would take the approach of, of trying to get like full adoption out of high school um, and trying to get the counselors really involved. And then um, we switched from that and we said, well, you know, just introduce it to your students and, and then let students take it from there. And what we've seen is once a student starts on raise uh, and earns their first micro scholarship, they have an 80% completion rate from there. Um, so it's something that students respond to, gets them excited, excited, um, and it, it makes the counselors' jobs a little bit easier when those students do get to their senior year because they've already, you know, done certain achievements and, and learned about college, and they're they're much better prepared. So we've gone from the you know rolled out to your whole high school to you know just introduce it to them and you know let the uh, kind of technology take it from there. So. That's definitely been a challenge is, is kind of dealing with the high school counselors and, you know, with all the other stuff they have on their plate. So, George, I'm really interested, uh, <clears throat> I think, in the spaces that you, you guys are in. And um, I think there's a general acceptance or in, in Capture as well, the general acceptance that companies um, can be uniquely committed to a sort of pro-social sort of, I don't want to call it social entrepreneurism, but that's the term that's been used. Um, but in higher education, there is this, um, there is this sense of, like, uh, there's certain groups of individuals who need to be a part of the conversation of access and driving the co- the, the conversation of, of you know, higher education access. What do you say to the people who say, you know, you're 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 a for-profit company just like Capture, that you know you you shouldn't even actually be a part of the conversation. That there's really not a role <laughs> for you. That that these are solutions that should come from within higher education, which is something that we tend to hear a lot. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um... You know, I think it's I think it's fair for for folks to say that um, because there's been a lot of companies out there that have taken advantage of of the system. Um, there's and and it's it's a system that that is ripe for disruption. Uh, I'll tell you that. Um, but what's been going on um, has not been working, and the trajectory we're on right now is is not working. But you know, to f- the folks to say that. Uh, I'd rather them be skeptical and earn back their trust um, than than vice versa. Um, and so, you know, as I think about the space, I mean, one of the things I'd, I'd point out, you know, that, that you guys know, it's, you know, a lot of the, the nonprofits that make more money than, than anyone. <laughs> so I'm probably going to get in trouble for that. But um, that that is something to consider. So, you know, when, when folks come to us and they say, you know, uh, well, so are you a nonprofit? And we say, well, you know, we're a for-profit. Um, the point of that is I, I would not put an emphasis on the prof- profit. In fact, I'll tell you right now, we are losing lots and lots and lots of money um, to, to make the impact that we are. All of our college part- partnerships are, are negative ROI. Um, we're still uh, you know, relying on our support from the Gates Foundation and folks like that um, to really supplement the cost um, to, to serve our partners and, and to serve our students. Um, but what we did say is we said, we don't want to go out there every year and have to raise money to support our annual operations. We would like to actually be able to, you know, have a revenue stream that, you know, would allow us to continue to, to build out our platform um, and serve students. The worst thing you could ever imagine would be a student that had been, you know, trying to earn micro scholarships for four years to an institution and then all of a sudden raise, you know, no longer exists, you know, for, for millions of students. Um, you know that have been been on the system for four years, um, and so that's why why we are a, um, 
a for-profit. Yeah, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't blame folks for feeling that way, and I think we'll continue to see that. I think uh, there are folks out there that are doing a lot of good work, and I'd say uh, we are, we've benefited from that. Um, you know, we are partnered uh, with the College Board. Um, you know, we're partnered, or we've got. You know, even the folks that have funded us um, are social impact investors. Um, but, uh, you know, there, there are so many folks that are doing great work out there, and we would rather partner with them. Um, and, and they've been very receptive to what we're doing. Um, and so I don't think any of us will accomplish what we want to accomplish if we don't do it together. Um, and so you know, to the folks that are out there that say, you know, there's not a place for, for raise or, or an organization like that, like Capture. Um, I think we have to, you know, win their trust over time, show them that we have the students' um, best interests in mind, um, and then, you know, partner with them together to, to make change. And that's what we've been trying to do since 2012, just like you guys. Yeah, I, I think you, you're, you're hitting on something really, really important. This, the, they're, they're, in higher education, the tech space is, well, let's say the tech space, just overall the the industry space in higher ed and enrollment management is so uh, fractured and there's such sort of corporate tribalism where there, there ends up this, this arms race sort of approach. And a lot of the solutions are really built around, well, you need us to make your class uh, or, you know, it's, it's so dependency based. And, and again, my, my opinion entirely, um, there is so little collaboration <laughs> Um, in this space. And you look at other industries that are trying to tackle big things. What you guys are working towards is a big, big deal, like uh, college access, getting more students to engage in their education um, and know that it's affordable and that there is aid out there and just rethinking how you do that. That's a big, big thing. And, and uh, you're right. I don't think we can do it just in and of ourselves. Um, and that's, a, that's an interesting thing in higher education, which is so collaboration-based in almost everything else that they do. In this one particular aspect, there is so little of it. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, you know, I, I think there uh, are some some folks that have managed to capture a lot of, of the market and um, one way or another, and, and there's a lot of folks trying to maintain their share of, of that, that market and control of, of the, the, the proverbial voice um, of the student. And, um, you know, I, I understand that. Um, but I think that, you know, there's, there's real opportunity and, um, I think you see a lot of folks right now, uh, really getting on attraction and, and maybe taking mind share and market share away from some of the longer standing, uh, you know, companies or consultants, uh, that have been out there in the space. Um, George, I was, uh, I was wondering, uh, so. Uh, this particular podcast focuses somewhat on data and has uh, both a nerd audience and a uh, beer drinking audience. So we'll, we'll get to your beer preferences if you're interested later. But I was just wondering uh, if you could just talk for a second uh, about um, uh, an interesting or compelling way in which Ray's is using data. Um, and then maybe talk about uh, how you would see uh, um, a potential end game, you know, what, what the... Um, the ultimate sort of vision of a sort of financial aid awarding strategy would be in a future where uh, data and technology maybe drove a little bit. I'd be curious for, for your thoughts. Um, if you have no thoughts on that, you can also just talk about beer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, if you know me, uh, you know I have thoughts on just about everything. Um, it's probably why I'm on this this podcast. 
Um, so from a data standpoint, so one of the things I think we need to consider with data is um, the way that it's used. Um, and so um, data can be used for good and can be used for, for evil. You'll, you probably notice this, but we don't advertise. Um, we, don't, we don't sell data. And that's something that, you know, uh, companies like us are always going to struggle with. Um, you know, what can we share with colleges that are both helpful for the colleges um, and helpful for the student? So when we, when we think about sharing data, um, we want there to be transparency on both sides. Um, and so I, I think because we're, we have a lot of former educators and Teach for America folks, um, and because of the folks that have supported us financially, we're always going to be um, probably more student focused than, than college college focused. Um, and uh, I've told you about this, Tom, many times. That's just kind of a na nature of uh, where we are. We, we feel like if um, uh, th there can be win-win situations. So if you can uh, share something with a college uh, and, share, and, and then share something back with a student, um, they can find a fit, you know, a nice fit um, place for the student to go to college. Um, so I, I think that's the first thing to think about from, from the data perspective. Um, in terms of interesting things that we see, we have 500,000 students and we're able to collect a tremendous amount of data on those students. Um, one, a couple of things we've started to look at recently include um, availability of AP classes. Um, so especially for those for those low-income students um, so one of the things that we award students for is taking an, an AP course but herein lies another issue well what if this school offers AP courses and an, another one doesn't so we've been able to start to track um, okay well these you know these high schools you know have 20 AP classes that they offer um, these don't but the equivalent at these high schools would be you know, an advanced or an honors course. Um, and then we're actually able to allow, to allow our colleges to um, award in that manner. So where they might award for an AP at one high school, they could award for an honors at another high school. Um, I think that also shows us that there's opportunities for, um, for uh, maybe to offer online AP courses at those high schools um, or, or to just acknowledge that they have, you know, less resources. And so We've had a lot of districts that have wanted us to do analysis for them on how they compare with other districts in terms of, of their competitiveness. Um, we've had folks from several foundations reach out to us wanting to look at the data to see where they could help certain high schools uh, that don't have uh, the same amount of resources. Um, so that's something we've looked at that's been, been pretty interesting. I think uh, looking at grade inflation at, at, at certain high schools, so looking at uh, you know GPAs, on unweighted GPAs across different high schools. Everyone has different scales, and I think there's a lot of colleges that, that already do this, where they have um, the ability to kind of rescale everything depending on the high school. Um, but we've been doing that at Rays as well, um, which is important as colleges want to have a system to award students for cumulative GPA across high schools. Um, and so being able to normalize across those high schools um, is, is really important. Um, I think there's some cool opportunities in, in the future. I'll tell you one that, I'm, that I'm, I've been talking to folks about um, recently is I, I think they're, um, I think one of the issues with the scholarship industry is that um, everyone expects a scholarship. 
there's become this uh, expectation that um, you know anyone should get a scholarship, no matter how much money you have, and it's a right, you know, not a privilege. Um, and we end up giving a lot of money, a lot of institutional aid to students that that you know don't necessarily need it. Um, you know, students that would otherwise be full full pay. And I think there's a real opportunity to look at um, student interest scores and to look at um, you know, income data and to move some of this merit aid um, away from the students who don't need it and towards students that have need and that have a, and that have a higher gap so that they can, you know, go to an institution, um, uh, have a smaller gap, be successful there, retain, graduate, um, and, and so everyone wins. And so that's something that a place where I think, you know, data could be used um, in a positive way. Um, but there's a balancing act. So we're always going to be, you know, colleges want net tuition revenue. And um, so that's something that we're always going to be uh, struggling with. And I think that therein lies the issue of being a social enterprise in a space um, where your, your clients are reliant on, on revenue to stay afloat. This whole idea that everyone gets a scholarship, everyone gets a ribbon, scoreless soccer. Like, what do you what do you attribute that to? The the fact that uh, people are 17, 18 years old, and um, at least according to your data, according to sort of your insights from uh, you know the the type of social enterprise that you're engaged with, that uh, that that's the case. Why is that? Yeah, I think it's because you know most schools they discount it, you know, 50, 50 percent, and so. Um, uh, they give that in the form of scholarships, and um, it's just a way, of, you know, for them to get down to their actual, you know, net net price, and it's a it's a feel good way. So yeah. it's fu it's funny. I was talking to this uh, university. I, w I won't mention the two, but they're both private colleges in Florida. One costs twenty six thousand. One costs forty two thousand, um, or around there. And one had kind of lowered their price and lowered their scholarships and all that. Um, and I was actually talking to the you know president at the university, and and he was talking about well you know it's it's been tough because we have a lower net price and maybe that you know allows some students to see on the front end that we are um, you know affordable. But what ends up happening at the end is so you know you look at a forty two thousand dollar price and a twenty six, and you're like man that forty two they must have better teachers and better facilities and they really must. Uh, you know, be a great yeah. school, and they're willing to give me a twenty thousand yeah, exactly. dollar discount exactly. uh, versus this school that's giving me a uh, you know four thousand yeah. dollar discount right. on twenty six. That is, there's got to be just a bunch of psychology baked into that. I mean, it's for you know this school must love me. They gave me a twenty thousand dollar discount, and if you just phrased it, well, is it possible that maybe they're charging twenty thousand dollars too much? Uh, so I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna take that just to to summarize what you're saying is that the whole everybody gets a scholarship at least in terms of the function of colleges is that maybe the the pricing scheme is what's broken, not the fact that everybody is expecting a scholarship. Uh, I think I think it's probably a uh, a vicious one of cycle. Those vicious cycles they that feed into each other. Um, I I think colleges would probably tell you that it's important. Um, to be able to give uh, a different price to every student, um, and by you know having a forty thousand dollar price and being able to discount down to a certain amount, you're able to do that, um, and it allows you to 
you know, do all the financial aid leveraging that, that folks do. Um, again, you know, my hope is that we can use it for good, you know, and give discounts to the people that need it. And um, I think in some cases you see that happening. In some cases you see uh, people giving discounts for other reasons, you know, really to, to shape their class. And so um, it's always going to be a balancing act. And same thing that you say with Ray's about, you know, why are you a for-profit? Um, you know, you could say the same thing to a, a college about, well, wh why are you enrolling those, you know, students, you know, and get, you know, that, that can pay full tuition and giving them discounts. And um, at the end of the day, what they'll tell you is we have to enroll these students um, so that we continue to be a going concern and so that we can continue to enroll these low-income students, 20 30% Pell eligible students, and serve them. And if we don't hit our net tuition revenue goals, we're not going to be able to serve, continue to serve students. And so um, that's the same thing that you see with the social enterprise is, um, you know, they, they have to make money so that they can continue to pursue their mission. And as, as we have success, we're actually reinvesting in the company, building out new cool things to tackle um, other problems that are out there. So one of the things we're doing right now is rolling out um, a transfer net network program. So one of the biggest problems out there um, with students that go to community colleges, about 80% of them um, plan to matriculate to a four-year, but only 25% of them end up doing that. And that's because they, they, don't, they fall off track, they don't know which courses to take, uh, they squander their Pell money, and then by the time they get to a, a four-year, uh, you know, the gap is, is too large at that point because they don't have any Pell dollars left. And so we're actually creating a, a pathway and a framework where students in community college can earn micro-scholarships towards a four-year, um, really with the goal of helping more students go from community, co community college to a four-year, um, and with the goal of lessening the cost of, of education overall by doing two plus two instead of spending four years at, at a, a four-year private. Um, so that's something we're excited about. And uh, again, another reason why we're for-profit, so we can continue to, to build new things out and, and pursue our mission. It's really fascinating stuff. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Before I let you go, as, as Brad mentioned, uh, we, we are a podcast that uh, likes to celebrate all things data and role management, but also like to celebrate uh, beer. Uh, do you have any recommendations <laughs> for a, uh, a good brew? It doesn't have to be local. It can be anywhere you've been. You've been around the country. So uh, do you have any recommendations for the listeners? Uh, you know, the funny thing about that is I live in San Francisco, and – I feel like it's it's like a uh, microbrew, like capital of, of the West Coast, I guess. But the funny thing is, you know, I'm the guy that just, I like it simple, man. You know, I, I like, uh, you know, just a Coors Light or Bud Light or, or whatever it is. And it's funny because we have these happy hours for our team and you've got, you know, I think like Racer 5 is one that people really like out here. Um, I don't know if you've heard of that one. Um, uh, but, you know, people are asking for all these crazy different beers and things like that. But there's always a 12-pack, of, of course, um, because our office manager knows that that I'm a simple guy, you know. And so it's it's always there. Um, but I'll tell you what, if you're looking for some, some good microbrews, come out to, to San Francisco because... Um, there, there are a lot. People are picky about their beers out here, much pickier than me. I'm a North Carolina boy, so. 
Outstanding. I love it. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, George. This is George Kirkland, co-founder of Raise.me. Thanks so much, George. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks a lot, George. Appreciate your time, man. That was George Kirkland, co-founder of Raise.me. Thank you so much to George for joining us here on the Waitlist Podcast. We want to hear from you, so please leave us a rating on iTunes. You can subscribe to us and share uh, on SoundCloud at SoundCloud forward slash waitlist. You can tweet at us at waitlist. Uh, you can also become a friend of the show on the Untapped app to check out the beers we enjoy during the podcast and find out where you can get them in your hometown. Just search for the Waitlist podcast in the Add a Friend section of the app and let us know what your favorite beer is, and we'll try to include it in upcoming future episodes of the show. Thanks so much for making us part of the day. Cheers, Brad. Cheers, Tom. Thanks so much. The Waitlist Podcast is a supporter of the Creative Commons and open source online communities everywhere. A link to the bump music used in this podcast can be found in the show description and at capturehighered.com forward slash waitlist.